Christians to cover themselves, to hide themselves, to blame others. And we saw that there were better responses because of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. We don't have to cover our sin anymore. He he knows, and He took the penalty for it. We don't have to hide from God. Jesus made a way for us to come to God. We don't have to blame others. Jesus Himself took the blame for us. And yet, even after the response to sin, there were consequences to sin in the curse, right? We saw the curse played out on the serpent. The curse played out on the woman in pain and childbirth. We saw the curse come upon man uh, in, in the form of uh, the ground not bearing fruit and, and bearing thorns and thistles even, uh, and to dust the man should return, and yet God was gracious because even in the midst of the consequence of sin, the curse of sin, there was a promise of salvation. There was a promise that there would be one who would come later who would end up crushing the head of Satan. And and if we thought that at the end of Genesis chapter 3, the consequences of sin were over, we would be wrong because we see those consequences just continue on. Because if sin is not dealt with, it will continue to affect not only ourselves, but those around us as well. Just consider how Adam and Eve's sin affected their children who were yet to be born at the time when they had sinned. And yet they themselves, with this sinful nature, continue on this path of sin. And not just once, but multiple times. And so again, sin, if not dealt with, just continues on in what the Bible calls the way of Cain. The way of Cain. And so I use that as my title this morning, that we would not follow the way of Cain, but that we would follow the way of Christ, and and to remember that only Christ, that only Jesus can reverse the consequence of sin. Only Jesus can reverse the curse of death through his own death and resurrection and help us in our own sinful nature and our own temptation to sin. So let's look at it this morning. What we find in the beginning of chapter 4 is that Cain and Abel are at church. And if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to note the first way of Cain that we see is this unacceptable worship. Cain and Abel eventually get to church, but before they do, they have to be born. And that's what we see in chapter 1. Chapter 4, verse 1, now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Thankfully, as all expectant parents should, wink, wink, those of you who are expecting children, that we know where children come from. This doesn't take a biology class. It doesn't take uh, much pressing in to understand what is meant uh, by verse 1 there. And yet, Eve gives credit where credit is due to the Lord. The, The Lord helped 
Adam and Eve, not only creating them for one another to be able to have children, but even giving them the privilege because let's go back a chapter and remember what they deserved for their sin, death. And yet, even in the curse, there was a promise of life, a promise of children, and God had given them children. And so Eve names her firstborn son Cain, uh, which sounds like the Hebrew word forgotten, uh, to be a reminder that the Lord had helped her and Adam to have these children. And so uh, they give him this special name and name him Cain. And, and then like many second-born children in verse 2, and again she bore his na- brother Abel. You know, it's just kind of like a glossing over at the second, first child has the, you know, birth announcements, a meaning for the name, all this, that, or the other, and then the second child, and again, it happened, you know. You know, we, those of us as parents, we, we strive for that not to happen, and then five children later, it happens. Uh, nevertheless, we give thanks to the Lord, um, we see even in even in Abel, um, we, we see that God is gifting Adam and Eve with these children. We see that God is showing himself faithful. We see that God is proving himself greater and more powerful than, than even the fall. And so God has gifted them, Adam and Eve, with Cain and with Abel. And now... As they grow older, it says that Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. They are helping their dad fulfill uh, one of God's command. We saw in verse 1, Adam and Eve were fulfilling God's first command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then here we're seeing them obey God's second command to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. And so here, Adam and his sons are subduing the earth. They're caring for the animals, the livestock, uh, Abel specifically. Cain is um, caring for the land and harvesting in the land. And so they're fulfilling those commands. And as they do, it says in verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And this is what you would expect. If Abel's taking care of flocks, then he would bring of his flocks an offering to the Lord from the flocks. And this is what you would expect for Cain as well. If he was a farmer harvesting the fields, he too would bring from his harvest to the Lord. So again, here they are at church, bringing their offering to the Lord. And up to this point, things seem great. But we get to the middle of verse 4, and we see the conflict arise. It says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. He accepted... Abel's offering, but he didn't accept Cain's offering. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, all right, tell me why. 
Why? Because I want to offer the Lord an acceptable offer. I want the Lord to have regard for my offering. So when I bring an offering, what, what do I need to make sure I do so that the Lord would accept my offering? Why did God accept Abel's and not Cain's? And there's been lots of explanations for this. And I know you're not going to like my answer, uh, but it's just not given here in this passage. But we have plenty of help. Uh, We've got plenty more Bible to be able to help us understand uh, what is happening in this passage. If you think about the context in which this passage is written, who it's written to, Uh, I know in your free time you love reading Leviticus, and when you do, you read about both animal sacrifices and uh, animal offerings and grain offerings. So it doesn't seem as if it's what is given that is the issue here. Uh, The Israelites who were given Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they knew that God accepted both grain offerings and animal offerings. There's something more uh, at stake here. There's another reason why God had no regard for Cain's offering. If we fast forward into the book of Hebrews, and we sang it well this morning, uh, thanks to Graham and Bethany leading us through that song, Uh, In fact, that Graham had written for us years ago when we preached through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, verse 4. If you weren't paying attention when we first sang the song, you missed the line. But this is it again. Hebrews 11, 4. The writer of Hebrews tells us why God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's. Because it was by faith that Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through through his faith, though he died, he still speaks." Remember that last part, he still speaks, but at the beginning of that, it tells us why. By faith, Abel had given of the firstborn of his flocks to the Lord by faith. Cain must have not come to the Lord with the offering of the fields by faith. Maybe he came out of duty feeling like he had to because his brother was going, so he had to go along, and he didn't want to come empty-handed, and so he wanted to go. Or, or maybe he came to church that morning just kind of going through the motions, knowing that he should and bring something, and he was going to just go through the motions, knowing that he should do the right thing, but his heart was just really not in it that morning. I don't know about you, but uh, there have been times in my life where my life, my worship to the Lord, even on a Sunday morning, is more out of duty than out of delight. It's more out of going through the motions than uh, I would like to say. And maybe you're the same way. Living a godly Christian life is not 
done by faith, but it's done because you feel like you have to or feel some demand or feel that even though you know the truth that we are saved by grace through faith, you think that you are accepted by God because of some works of your own. And this passage here in Genesis chapter 4 is reminding us that that's not the case. You were not accepted by God by any works. You are not, your offerings are not accepted by God because of any of your works. You are accepted by God because of someone else's works, namely Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. You're accepted by God by faith in him and nothing else. So if you came here this morning hoping to put something in the offering box or to even just show up and think that God would smile down on you because you happen to be in this smelly gym on a Sunday morning rather than at home in bed, you've got a wrong understanding of how the Lord is working. The Lord accepts not by works, but by faith. And he proves that here in this passage by accepting Abel's who was by faith rather than accepting and having no regard for for Cain's in that moment. Uh, It would be a challenge to us that we, uh, like Paul writes in 2 Timothy, wouldn't have a form of godliness without any faith. That we would live by faith and that by faith it would produce godliness. It would produce good works. It would produce an offering that can be given by faith. You see, one of the first ways of Cain that's represented here is this unacceptable worship. We oftentimes want to worship God on our own terms and like we would want, rather than coming to the Lord on his terms. And this is a reminder to us that we don't have that right we don't have that, that privilege. We are sinners, born with a sinful nature and having sinned ourselves. And so we don't come on our own terms. We come on his terms. And he's made his terms very clear, and we'll see those more as we go through this passage. The second way of Cain uh, we see is a word of warning. And I've titled it a gracious word of warning Because the Lord didn't have to do this, but the Lord did. And we see it in, even in the midst of uh, verse 5, we see Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. After we saw Cain's unacceptable offering, and the fact that God had no regard for it, Cain was ticked. Uh, Cain was angry. And I imagine his anger was vertical 
and horizontal at the same time. I mean, he was reeling with anger towards the Lord for not accepting and towards his brother for being Mr. Goody Two-Shoes and always being accepted and being better than, than he was in that moment. And the Lord questions him graciously. I mean, think back to what, how God came to Adam and Eve in the garden. And did he come blasting Adam, um, damning him at that, that point in the garden? No, he came and he began questioning Adam, saying, where are you? Giving him a chance to repent and confess. And God does the very same thing here in the midst of Cain's unacceptable, faith-lacking offering. God comes to him and asks, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? I mean, even on Cain's uh, physical posture, you could see his anger. His face had fallen. And the Lord warns him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And another way to restate that, if you do well, or if you don't do well, you won't be accepted. If you do well, you will be accepted. The Lord warns him and essentially says, you didn't do well. Do well now. Do what's right by faith now. Don't continue on this path. Don't continue to go the way of Cain as it is so prescribed. And so he warns him. He questions him first. He continues on and and warns him. And the word for accepted, it literally means to be lifted up. And so where you see Cain being angry and his face having fallen, the Lord is saying, if you do well, if you offer by faith, will you not be lifted up? We can see this play out in our own lives when we too have sinned and our physical posture shows it. Our face has fallen. Our heart is heavy. We, there's not a joy in our face. And yet in times when we've obeyed the Lord and followed Him and walked by faith, there's a lifting up of us, a joy in us. That's God's grace that's God's warning to us to turn and to repent from those things that cause our, causes our face to fall and our heart to be angry. We have to turn from those things and, and, and turn to, towards the Lord and, and to the way that the Lord has prescribed for us to worship Him so that He can lift our face up. But Cain uh, doesn't do so moving forward. He continues on. But the Lord warns still the more in the middle of verse 7. He says, and if you do not, we- do not do well, he says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. He uses a word play here, a word picture here. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door the door, as, as if it's uh, an animal, a beast, or 
something like that, crouching behind the door, waiting for someone to open the door, or a thief or a robber, waiting for the door to be cracked open to be able to pounce and to bust in and to attack and to bring you down even more. And God warns and says, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. If you've been here in some of the past weeks, that language should, should sound familiar to you. you. You could probably just go up higher in your Bible or over a column and look at Genesis chapter 3. And in verse 16, in God's curse to the woman, he says, your desire, same word, shall be for or contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Well, now, in the same way that sin had distorted the God-given relationship between man and woman, sin here has distorted the relationship between man and God in worship. And so, sin's desire, he says, is contrary to you, and you must rule over it or else it will kill you it's crouching at the door the new testament again helps us understand what is meant by this when other new testament authors pick up on uh, the crouching the prowling uh, the enticing nature of sin and its destructive pattern in our life. Again, following that way of Cain and the, seeing the continued consequences of sin. James, in his letter to the early church, Jesus' brother, he writes this in James chapter 1, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is the same idea, the same picture that God was trying to communicate to Cain graciously on that day that Jesus' brother helps us with, helped the New Testament Christians, the first century Christians 2,000 years ago, is we as Christians now, 2,000 years later, are still being helped by it to realize that because of our sin sinful nature, we are tempting ourselves and being lured and enticed away. And if we, uh, if we don't crush that, if we don't kill that, if we don't rule over that right there in that moment, it'll conceive and give birth to sin, and sin, if not addressed, will bring forth death. That's the very thing that ends up happening to Cain because he doesn't put a stop to his sin. This gracious warning to the Lord of the Lord to Cain then is a gracious warning to each of us, especially as Christians, to kill the sin in our life. That we don't allow it to just fester and, and continue on in the corner or in the dark. We don't allow it to continue on even in its slightest form, but we recognize it, address it, crush it, kill it so that it doesn't have its way with us. That we wouldn't follow the way of Cain and keep a little bit of it. Or just 
push it aside for a while. God says you must rule over it. You must show dominion over it. Otherwise, it it will kill you. Peter goes on not just in talking about our own sinful nature and desire, but he talks about Satan's temptation to tent, to temptation to sin in a very similar way. In 1 Peter 5.8, Peter writes again to the early church, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Much like sin crouching at the door, the devil is prowling around seeking someone to devour. You need to know, Christian, that Satan is seeking an open door, a a cracked door for him to pounce, to be able to destroy you, to destroy your family, to destroy your faith, to destroy your, your, your Christian walk. He's looking for those opportunities. Or Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He speaks of when the sin of unforgiveness is crouching at his door of his heart. He says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, I forgive you, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul offers forgiveness to others for sinning against him so that Satan doesn't have, an, have the opportunity to pounce and to rule over and to kill. So we need to remember these things. We need to remember the, that, that sin is not just a, a little problem in our lives. Sin started as our death, the reason that we were separated from God in the beginning. But by faith, by grace, through faith, those of us who have repented of our sins and trusted in Christ's death and resurrection to save us and to forgive us of our sins, we've been saved and offered life and offered eternal life in the end, but sin still wages war against us. Sin is still crouching at the door of your heart. And some of you need to kill it. Some of you need to attack it more than you've been attacking it recently. Uh, Through confession. Through repentance. Not only to the Lord, but to one another. You need to kill it with the Word of God. By the Spirit of God. In one of John Owen's most famous works called The Mortification of Sin which is a great title regarding this idea, he asked the question to the reader, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's a good word for us when we consider this passage in Genesis chapter 4 as a church together this morning. Cain was unwilling to kill the sin in his own heart, the anger in his own heart, and it continues to lead to more and more sin 
as we press on and, and as we see. God's gracious warning for him was not heeded on that day, but you have the opportunity to heed the Lord's warning. I mean, this was the turning point. This, the rest of the story would not be there had Cain heeded God's gracious warning in that moment, repented, confessed, turned, offered apology to his own brother, offered apology to the Lord, offered a sacrifice by faith in that moment. But he doesn't. He continues on in this. And this is why we too, or we ought to heed God's gracious warning that we would obey Christ's words to repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. Or the same message that the apostles preached in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. The same message that was appropriate during the life of Jesus, the same message that was appropriate when Jesus ascended back to sit at the right hand of the Father, it's the same message that's appropriate for us this morning. For all of us who have, at one point or another, gone the way of Cain, that we ought to repent, that we ought to turn, that we ought to be doing whatever it takes to kill the sinful desire in us so that we wouldn't allow it to crouch at the door any longer, pounce on us, entice us, lure us, because we know that it leads to death. And not only our own death, maybe physical, maybe spiritual, if you never repent and trust in Christ, but potentially to the death of others, to the pain and toil of others, because sin doesn't just hurt you, it hurts those around you as well. And that's obviously true in Cain's life. When he doesn't put a stop to his, his own ways and turn to follow the Lord's ways, he continues on in this. So third thing, if you're taking notes, the third way of Cain we see represented in this text is his selfish wickedness. His selfish wickedness. He offered first an unacceptable worship, and yet on the way of Cain, God graciously warned him, and yet he denied responding to that gracious warning, and he continues in the midst of selfish wickedness. And wickedness kills those around us. We see that in verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now that's the climax of this entire story. I mean, just consider what, what has happened here, where there has been life after life, after life, God giving life, breathing life, all of those things. When sin creeped in, and even before sin creeped in, there was a promise of death if they disobeyed the Lord. And when sin creeped in, it 
brought death into this world. And yet God was gracious. It wasn't immediate. He held back death of Adam and Eve uh, and kicked them out of the garden, though they would one day die. Here too, uh, or even in that moment with Adam and Eve, God killed one of his own animals that he had created to give them covering for their sin and their nakedness. He shed the blood of an innocent animal in the place of Adam and Eve. But here is the first death, the first even killing, the first murder of one of God's children made in his image. And so this is the height. This is one of the worst things that Adam and Eve and any of their children afterwards could have done. Killing one who was made in the image of God. Wickedness of Cain it killed those around him, literally, his, his own brother. But wickedness led to more and more wickedness. Because in verse 9 it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Not only did Cain not put a stop to his own ways and repent and confess, but he allowed wickedness to fester. He opened the door. It pounced. It ruled over him rather than him ruling over it. And it led him to killing his own brother and striking him down. And he didn't stop even there. But it pounced again and wickedness, wickedness led to even more wickedness because not only had he murdered, he lies directly to God. When God comes to him, obviously knowing where his brother was, for God is omniscient, he knows, but he graciously asks Cain, where is your brother? And he says, I don't know. And he lies and when he lies, he makes God the liar. We, can, we might remember 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 through 10, where the Apostle John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But in verse 10, again, it says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. When Cain says, I do not know where he is, he's essentially making God the liar in this passage. He, rather than confessing his sins to the Lord and finding God to be faithful and just, he doesn't confess. He lies. And he offers his own questions back to the Lord and says, am I my brother's keeper? Well, in fact, yes, you are. Because when God made us in his image, he made us in the depths of our heart knowing that we ought to care for those who are made in God's image to steward well the creation that he gave to them. 
This is like in the New Testament when the lawyer comes to Jesus knowing that he should love his neighbor. He says, but who is my neighbor? Who, who am I supposed to love? And Jesus tells the, the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And those who don't stop on the side of the road to help the man who is hurting, and yet a Samaritan comes along and is willing to do so to take care of him. Cain is making excuses, saying, am I the one to take care of my brother? Do I have to keep tabs on him? Do I have to know where he is? God will make it, had already made it abundantly clear in their hearts that you ought not to take the life of another, but he makes it even abundantly more clear a a couple chapters later in Genesis chapter 9-6 where he says, Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. When Cain murdered Abel, it was an attack not only on Abel but on the Lord for giving Cain Abel as his brother in this. This isn't just hatred of a brother, hatred of a sibling in this moment. This is hatred towards God for giving him this brother who offered an offering that was acceptable to God by faith. And so he attacks the Lord. He is not just attacking his own brother. He is attacking the Lord. Jesus reminds us that it was anger that led to murder in Cain, Cain's story with Abel. When Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 5, he says in verse 21, You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Because God knew, Jesus knows, that it wasn't just murder that was the problem here. It was a heart issue. Murder was the outward, visible, serious sin in the life of Cain, but it was an anger problem. It was a pride issue. It was a a frustration with the Lord not accepting his offering uh, that turned into anger towards his brother for having an acceptable offering that led itself to, to killing. It's not just about our acts towards our brothers and sisters or our acts towards other human beings. They come from the heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, the Bible says, the mouth speaks and the hands do. And so when we see actions like that, there's a deeper issue there in Cain's life. When you look at your own life and you see your own sin, there's probably a deeper heart issue that results itself in some outward serious sin towards others or towards the Lord. Or maybe you've done a good job of keeping it quiet or keeping it secret. And though you may have done a good job of it here on this earth, let's, 
let's remember that the Lord knows. The Lord knew exactly where Abel was. He didn't have to question Cain. He knew exactly where he was, and yet he gave him an opportunity to repent and confess. As long as you're still living and breathing, the Lord is giving you an opportunity to repent and confess to the Lord of the sin that you have in your own heart, your own anger towards the Lord for whatever cards you've been dealt or whatever anger you may have in your own heart towards any other human being, lest you don't rule over it and it festers towards some outward harsh words that you can't ever take back or some harsh actions that you will never be able to take back. This is God's warning to us, God's gracious warning to us to not go down the way of Cain. And at whatever point you are at on this journey of sin, by God's grace, you're given an opportunity this morning to repent. That phrase, the way of Cain, it comes from Jude in the New Testament, in verse 11, where Jude writes, Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain, and they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Jude brings up three Old Testament stories, Old Testament examples of men who were all dissatisfied with the situation that they were facing the situation that God had them in. And they took matters into their own hands and rebelled against God and God's servants in that day looking for some sort of selfish gain. That's what the way of Cain is. That's what Cain was doing in Genesis chapter 4. That's what Jude was writing about people doing in the first century. And people are still doing that now. Some of us have still, are still walking in those ways. And lest we continue in them, we ought to repent. Because there's more to the way of Cain if we don't deal with it right here and right now. And that's what we see in verse 10 through 16. This lonely wandering. Lonely wandering. Not only loneliness away from others, on this earth, but loneliness away from the presence of God. Look at it in verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? But he doesn't pause to give him any time to uh, explain himself or lie again. He just continues on. He says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God is letting Cain know that not only is he omniscient, but justice is being cried for from Abel's blood. And Abel's blood uh, was crying out for justice when those drops of blood hit the ground. For Abel was not sinless, but he was innocent in this matter, right? And 
this innocent man's blood was crying out for justice to God because he shouldn't have been killed. This shouldn't have happened. And when there's injustice, the Lord knows about it. And it cries out to him because he is faithful and just. And so we know that his blood is is crying out. This is why when you fast forward into the Old Testament, we see this old covenant of sacrifice, offering blood for the sins of others. But the New Testament, like we said earlier, it helps us to understand um, something more. The writer of Hebrews tells Christians in the first century, he says, see that you do not refuse him or Jesus who is speaking. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. He says, For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. So the writer of Hebrews is encouraging the Christians of his day to heed the warning of Jesus to heed the the warning of the Word of God during their time. Jesus, who not only walked on the earth, but then is in heaven, he urges them to heed the warning of of Christ, to repent and believe. Why? Because he writes in verse 22 and then 24, for you have come to Jesus. In verse 24, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? Well, Abel's blood in Genesis 4 was crying out to God because he was innocent in that matter. Not sinless, but innocent in that matter. Injustice had been done. He had been murdered wrongly. And his blood was crying out to God who is faithful and just. Well, here, the writer of Hebrews says there was another who was innocent and yet murdered. And more than innocent, he was sinless. And if Abel's blood cried out to God for justice, how much more so would Jesus' blood cry out for justice in that point? And so Christians, we hold to Christ's blood, his blood that was shed at at the cross. This is why a passage like 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 that we read earlier means so much. It says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. You would expect that verse to say he is faithful and merciful, faithful and gracious. Faithful and loving. Faithful and caring for you in the midst of sin. But it says he is just. He is faithful and just because he killed his one and only son on the cross for your sins and for my sins. And so God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins. Because Christ already paid the penalty. And so, yes, Christ blood speaks a better word than even Abel's, which is why the writer of Hebrews goes on in verse 28 
of chapter 12. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. If you know that you've gone the way of Cain and have recognized that in the past and have repented and believed in Christ, remember today that Christ's blood speaks a better word on your behalf. Therefore, be grateful this morning, remembering the kingdom that you have received and offer to the Lord acceptable worship. But if you've yet to turn to Christ, whose blood was shed for you on the cross, and you've yet to repent of your sins, you've yet to believe in Christ, and are continuing on the way of Cain, look at what happens. He, he after questioning him and stating that his, the voice of his brother, brother's blood is crying out to him from the ground, in verse 11 he says, Now you are cursed. From the ground. God had already cursed the ground, but now God is specifically cursing Cain from the ground. The ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Verse 12 When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You remember earlier it said that. He was a worker of the ground, and he brought an offering from the harvest. The ground had, though it had thorns and thistles and was hard because of the curse in Genesis 3, God graciously was still enabling them to produce there. And yet, God is saying here, no longer will it yield to you, Cain, its strength. Cain had spent his whole life as a farmer, and now... No longer will he ever be able to have any fruit from his garden, any fruit from his fields. This is a specific curse on Cain. And he, and he goes beyond that and he says, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Alone. Uh, not only away from the Garden of Eden like his parents, but even further away we'll see, to the east, away from God's presence. Well, in Cain's response to this punishment, to this lonely wandering that he's going to face, he says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. I mean, he... he understands that because of what he's done, he's going to have to face death himself. He knows in the depths of his heart what God will make clear in Genesis 9-6, that if you kill, you yourself shall be killed. He knows it's going to happen. In the coming days when his parents have more children and those children have children, that if anybody finds him, that he'll be killed. But I want you to again to see God's grace. Because in verse 15, the Lord said to him, not so. Emphatically, not so. 
God doesn't want anyone to experience death apart from him. Look at God's grace. Look at God's patience in this passage. Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Many people have interpreted the mark of Cain as being a mark of the curse. And they've tried to figure out what is this mark? Is it a, is it a tattoo? Is it a mark on his forehead? Is it a mark on his skin somewhere? Is it a, a disability? Is it something some have even so unbiblically gone as far as saying that the mark of Cain was putting darker skin on Cain so that he would look different from all of his, his parents and his brothers and sisters and, and things like that. And it's ridiculous. All of the different things that some of the ideas that are out there uh, uh, in the world about it because the Bible just doesn't say anything. Much less to think that the curse or that the mark is, is a curse when in reality the mark is God's grace on Cain's life. Keeping him alive. If God wanted him dead, he would have killed him immediately. If God wanted someone else to kill him, he could have allowed that to happen as well. But God was gracious to him and put a mark on him lest anyone else would kill him in that moment. The, the mark on Cain is a, is a mark of God's grace. But nevertheless, verse 16 says that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Nod meaning wandering. Again, east always, especially in these early chapters of Genesis, meaning further and further away from God. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the east of the garden. Cain is going east towards Nod. When you get to Genesis chapter 11, they build a tower in the east. And so we can see this downward progression of sin. The consequences of sin didn't stop in chapter 3. They continue on in chapter 4. And the consequences of our sin don't stop with us. They affect those around us. And if sin is not dealt with properly and you continue on the way of Cain, not heeding God's gracious warnings, sin will kill you. If you don't ever repent and put your faith and trust in Christ who took the punishment for your sin, you'll spend eternity separated from God in hell. And so I urge you this morning to heed God's gracious warning to Cain that we are reminded of this morning. Jesus' words, the apostles' words, repent and believe. And go the way of Christ he who says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. And if you have repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Christ, and yet still find yourself with indwelling sin and temptation to sin, ungodly desires, things in your life that you know are not honoring to the Lord, 
some form of unacceptable worship to God, anger in your heart towards a brother, a sister, a brother or sister in Christ. If you see those things, if the Lord has made those, you aware of those things in your life this morning, I urge you to confess, to repent to the Lord, to confess and repent to one another, to be killing sin or it will be killing you and those around you. We have an opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness every Sunday morning when we allow God's word to guide us in the right way that we ought to worship him. And he's made it clear in his word how we are to worship him. And that's through repentance and faith. And so this morning, I want to give us an opportunity to repent and confess just between us and the Lord. And then I urge you to take that to whatever means you see necessary, following in the way of Christ rather than the way of Cain, making that known to someone else, offering forgiveness to someone else, repenting and confessing to someone else, taking steps to kill sin in your own life. And so if you will, would you just bow with me? Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes for a moment. If the Lord has made you aware in our time together this morning of sin in your own life, that you've allowed yourself to go down the path of, would you spend some time confessing to the Lord and not allowing this moment to pass, not allowing the door to be cracked open for sin or Satan to pounce, but let us take advantage of the opportunity that we have as long as we have breath to repent and believe again.